Good morning. Today's reading is from Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 through 23, and can be found in the Pew Bible on page 74. Moses said to the Lord, See, you have said to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways, so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that if I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way, we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, see, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Thus ends today's reading. Let us turn now to the oldest piece of writing in the New Testament. Paul's letter, first letter to the Thessalonian church. This is older even than the Gospels themselves. Let us hear Paul as he writes to these believers in Thessalonica. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers, constantly remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters beloved by God, that he has chosen you because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power 
and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of persons we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For in spite of persecution, you received the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith in God has become known, so that we have no need to speak about it. For the people of those regions report about us what kind of welcome we had among you and how you turned from God to you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus who rescues us from the wrath that is coming this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Your spirit has not assembled us here, O Lord, in your sanctuary, merely to impart human words. It is holy word, your word, your word alone that gives us life. Come, Holy Spirit, and breathe in these human words and human hearts and minds and kindle the fire of your love and life in us. Amen. We have a situation in Thessalonica. Thessalonica, a prosperous city of about 200,000, is a capital of major province in the Roman Empire. The Roman emperor at this time is Claudius, a preening, paranoid Caesar who has executed at least 35 senators and 400 other Roman officials whom he does not trust. Claudius has also expelled Jews from the city of Rome because he is threatened by this Messiah. As emperor, Claudius claims to be God himself, one of many, but he understands that he is divine. So he isn't really open to a group of citizens who worship not the array of Greek and Roman gods, but exclusively one crucified and risen God, Jesus, the Anointed One. Thessalonica is a bustling seaport. In the first century, Thessalonica is the center of worship for both Greek and Roman deities, so there are many temples where many pilgrims flood into the city to offer sacrifices to an array of gods. The temple cult is a good moneymaker for the city. Somewhere in the city there is an inscription that reads, after death no reviving, after the grave no meeting again, which gives you an idea of the prevailing religious beliefs. 
into this city bubbling with religious competition, economic and political turmoil, comes Paul. If you'll grab one of the Pew Bibles and turn with me to Acts 17, or if you would just like to listen, we can get a report on this situation in Thessalonica. Acts 17. So Paul and Silas have passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they come to Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, there's a synagogue of the Jews. Now, Paul's habit is to come to a city, find the synagogue, and then on the Sabbath day, start to teach them. In this case, Acts says he argues with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead. And Paul says, this is the Messiah, Jesus, who am I am proclaiming to you. Some of the Jews are persuaded and join Paul and Silas, and many devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews, others of the Jews, we read in verse 5, became jealous. And with the help of some ruffians in the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. While they were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out of the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. Jason is where Paul was staying. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some believers before the city authorities, shouting, These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus. The people and the city officials were disturbed when they heard this. And after they had taken bail from Jason and the others, they let them go. But believers there considered Paul and Silas were in danger. So that night, that very night, they slipped them out of the city and sent them off to Berea. That's the situation in Thessalonica. So now, Paul sits safely, probably in Athens or Corinth, and he's wondering how these believers in Thessalonica are doing. He asks for a report of them. He's left behind this group of followers of Jesus, people of the way. How is their fledgling faith holding up? Their houses are invaded. They are dragged into the street by mobs. They get cast out of the city, we read later in Paul's letter. Families are torn apart by differences of opinions and beliefs. And yet, and yet, Paul is amazed to hear that there are reports all over the region about these believers. This band of Christ followers has gained a reputation that has spread like wildfire without the help of radio, television, and social media. All of great Greece buzzes with the accounts of their resistance to the selfish, self-obsessed ways of the empire around them. These believers have accomplished remarkable works in the strength of their faith, perhaps healings, feeding of multitudes, conversions, 
and the power of their sacrificial love, not only for each other, but for strangers, foreigners, the orphans, the sick, who are left to die by the side of the road. And they are foreshadowing what one Roman officer will say in years to come when he declares with amazement, see how these Christians love one another. In all their suffering, these believers have not given up hope. They are holding fast to the message and the future of Jesus Christ. And even when they are beaten and cast out of the city, they live with a joy that their neighbors cannot understand. No wonder the whole peninsula is sitting up and taking notice. As are we, 2,017 years later. Let us be clear. These Thessalonian Christians are not plastic saints. They are flesh and blood believers. They worry. They worry about the future and what will happen to them. See chapter 5 of the letter. They worry about their loved ones who have already died without Jesus' return. See chapter 4. They grieve. They question their faith. They disagree with one another about the right way to live their faith. Some of the believers are lazy. Since they expect Jesus to return any day, they've stopped working. Some of the believers are faint-hearted, afraid. These are not plastic saints. And yet, and yet, they are transformed and transforming lives are notorious. What are we to make of this? How are we to understand this? How do these Thessalonian believers, or modern-day believers like them, for that matter, in places of turmoil and persecution, in Syria, in Iraq, or Palestine, how do they continue in faith and love and hope? How do believers closer to home, believers like the father who looks on the life of his paralyzed son and marvels, saying, there are so many miracles, so many miracles. How does such a man persevere in faith in the midst of suffering? Here's a clue. Verse 1. Paul is not writing to individuals here. At the opening of his letter, he addresses the gathering of believers. The word he uses could be translated a collective. The Thessalonian believers are a collective. Have you ever heard of a collective? Collectives are organizations whose members pool their resources and abilities to reach a common goal like collective farms, collective businesses. There are bicycle collectives at the University of Pennsylvania. There are housing collectives. This collective in Thessalonica is organized around Jesus Christ. This collective's goal is to abandon the ways of earthly empire, Rome's values and priorities, Rome's economics, 
Rome's definitions of greatness and power, Rome's definitions of rights and justice, Rome's definition of neighbor or stranger or relative. Abandon these and adopt priorities, economics, definitions of God's empire, the way of Jesus Christ. This faith that is working wonders in the Roman Empire, no individual is accomplishing them. This love that pours itself out for others like a woman who labors in childbirth, this hope that anchors the soul in tragedy, outlasts suffering and fosters, of all things, joy. Love with this kind of power and hope this persistent can only exist among believers who have come apart from the world and come together to live an alternative way. This collective's purpose is to go against the current of the world. Its members understand that they are setting themselves apart. Indeed, God has set them apart. It is what they want. It has become so clear to them that the life of the empire, the ways of the world, do not yield a present or lead to a future that they have any desire to be part of. They know there is more, far more. They have seen it in Jesus Christ. So they come together to live a narrative different than the dominant narrative of the world with an alternative purpose for their existence, trusting in an alternative ending for their lives, far from living as though after the grave there is no meeting again. The members of this collective live as though their years on earth are only a preparation for life in God's empire of grace and glory. The members of this collective do not expect the world around them to live and act like God's realm, because it isn't. But when they live and act like citizens of God's empire, then they are able to shape and influence and even transform the empire around them. They do not abandon the world when they abandon its ways. As Leslie Newbegin writes, the marks of biblical counterculture will be a confident hope that makes hopeful action possible even in situations which are, humanly speaking, hopeless. Works of faith labors of love. You and I know it must be difficult for the Thessalonian Christians and many modern Christians to live this alternative script in the shadow and rule of earthly empires, difficult to seek justice under corrupt and ruthless leaders, to love even the ones that beat them. Must be hard to hold fast 
to hope and summon joy as loved ones are taken away and Jesus has still not returned. Surely, these men and women's own faith get stretched thin along the way. Surely, they grow weary of loving. And in the shadow of Rome's cruelty and decadence, how could their hope not flag? Do you think that any single one of them could have persevered in faith in the shadow of Rome if they were not part of this Christian collective? That is why Paul calls them back to their common purpose and exhorts them later in the letter to love more and more, to encourage one another. And he rejoices that they have received the gospel not just in words, but in the power of the Holy Spirit which raised Jesus Christ from the dead. These Thessalonians are not plastic saints. They are real men and women who have staked their lives on the truth of Jesus and pulled their faith, pulled their love, pulled their hope, pulled their income, Acts tells us. They've pulled their need and their grief and their sorrow. And because they have, they receive power from the risen Christ. And they are able to accomplish far more than any of them could have imagined on their own. And they live with joy. This is what it means to be a collective of Jesus Christ. This is church. Celtic Christians have a symbol for this collective. Perhaps you will remember, we've mentioned it before. It's a flock of wild geese. It's an apt symbol for Christ's collective. For you remember how when geese fly together, each goose provides additional lift and reduces air resistance for the goose flying behind it. By flying together in V formation, the whole flock can fly about 70% farther and 75% faster with the same amount of energy than if each goose flew alone. Geese rotate leadership. The goose flying in the front of the formation has to expend the most energy because it is the first to break up the flow of air. So when the lead goose gets tired, it drops out of the front position and moves to the rear of the formation where the resistance is lightest and another goose moves to the leadership position. Let us remember this as the nominating committee gets to work and gives you a call. Geese help each other. When one goose becomes ill, is shot or injured, and drops out of the formation, two other geese, get this, two other geese will fall out of the formation 
and remain with the weakened goose. Stay with it, protect it from predators until it is able to fly again or it dies. Do you want to fly against the currents of modern empires? Do you want to head in a direction different than the empires of the earth and head towards God's future empire, which Christ has revealed and brought near? You will not get very far on your own. You must take your place in a flock of wild geese. There are many flocks to choose from, many collectives, business, military, sport, social, all worthwhile. But if it is God's kingdom you seek, there is only one flock headed there. We are only able to fly great distances and get to where Christ wants us to go if we help each other ride the currents of his spirit, which are already and always flowing among us. And we take our turn at leading and drop back at times when we need to catch a lift and stop to accompany someone who has fallen or fallen away. It will not work if you only check in now and then, if you connect with Christ's flock only when you are weary and need a boost, a lift, that is not flying. That is hitchhiking. Of course, you are welcome to hitchhike. The flock is always open. But the key to a spiritual life that enables us to soar even in suffering and delivers us to our destination lies in flying in formation with the flock that is under the power of Jesus Christ. Riding the currents of God's Spirit together. This is how we will receive the power to accomplish works of faith and perform labors of love and live anchored in a steadfast hope that will make the citizens of the empires around us sit up and take notice. Amen.